Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA employs brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call one 800 245 6000 That's one 800 245 6000 Or visit taxnetworkusa.com slash victor. Taxnetworkusa.com slash victor. Hello, America. Happy Monday. So glad you can join us in the start of a new week. Lots of news going on. If you need to get a news fix, you know what to do. Go to justthenews.com. We've got you covered there. We've got a great show for you today. Uh, the world is aflame, uh, particularly uh, scratching its head on what to do about the prolonged now Russia-Ukraine conflict. Does Joe Biden have this right? A lot of people have their doubts. We've got somebody at the start of the show top of the show today that really can get to the bottom of it. Uh, George Beebe, he's currently the director of grand strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Before that, he was one of the CIA's premier experts on Russia, Russian intelligence and analysis. He's joining us to make sense of that war and all the other things going on. China aggression, uh, while well, really sage voice in the intelligence and security world. He's first up today, George Beebe. And then we're going to go to Houston and to a good friend of the Second Amendment. Joining us uh, from Houston is a, uh, he's been a reserve officer for a long time there. He's also a training director for the Concealed Coalition. He is Austin Davis, and you're gonna love what he has to say about getting prepared to protect yourself. What happened at the July 4th massacre last week in the Chicago suburbs. He's got us covered on all those things. One of the great voices of the Second Amendment, Austin Davis, right after this commercial break. All right, folks, as we draw near to another critical election, it's not only about casting your vote, it's about elevating your voice, making your voice be heard. AMAC is more than just a senior discount organization. They unite like-minded patriots like you and I, committed to preserving our cherished values and actively opposing the leftist agenda that's sweeping across America. Just look at their recent victories. AMAC members helped to push forward an investigation into practices that inflate drug prices. They successfully defeated ranked choice voting in order to protect traditional voting methods, and they've also helped block a federal takeover of elections. As AMAC's membership grows, Washington is listening. Every new member strengthens this movement. If you love America, visit AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S slash Just News to become a four-year member for just $30. That's a great discount. AMAC is not only better for America, it's better for you. Membership gives you access to the AMAC magazine, free Social Security and Medicare guidance, money-saving discounts, trusted news, sweepstakes, 
and so much more. It's a community, not a service. Take advantage of our election year sale, four years for just $30 at AMAC. By joining over 2 million Americans, they can't ignore your voice in Washington anymore. Join now at AMAC, AMAC.us slash just news. That's AMAC.us forward slash just news. Hey folks, John Solomon here from John Solomon Reports. I'm proud to be on the iHeartRadio app every day with my podcast, with the news that we bring, the exclusive interviews. And you know what else is great? You can listen to any iHeartRadio station anywhere in the country inside this free app. I used to listen to all sorts of radio on my AM or FM radio. Today, I don't have time to be in the car that often. You know where I listen? I listen on the iHeartRadio app. It's awesome. And they have some really cool new features, unlike anything else in the market. One of them is called Talk Back Mike. Anytime I have something to say, I tap the mic and send my voice message and then listen to hear my voice on one of my favorite shows. Isn't that cool? You can send a message to your favorite disc jockey, your favorite podcast show host. So be sure to download the iHeart app radio. If you don't have it right now, the iHeart radio app is a winner. Be sure to download the free iHeart radio app today and start streaming your favorite radio stations, your favorite podcasts, and your favorite music playlists right from the iHeart radio app. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. I know a lot of us are thinking about how long may this war go on in uh, Eastern Europe between uh, Ukraine and Russia, uh, all of the challenges that an aggressive Vladimir Putin has created for the world. Well, we have one of the perfect guests to help us walk through that very thorny and tricky issue. He's a, uh, a longtime intelligence analyst and former head of the CIA's Russia Analysis Desk, currently the director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He is George Beebe. George, great to have you back on the show. Great. Thank you, John. You have done a lot of writing, a lot of thinking. In fact, I think your 2019 book was probably one of the most impressive to warn of what was coming. The Russia trap, how our shadow war with Russia could spiral into nuclear catastrophe. A lot of warning signs that the tensions were building. Uh, we're three or four months into the war now. Your thoughts, is this going to be a long haul war or is there some diplomatic settlement that could burble out of it? Well, right now, uh, we're not heading toward a diplomatic settlement, although I think we should be. Uh, but uh, all indications are that the Russians are girding for a very long-term uh, war in Ukraine. Uh, and the United States uh, and the West are as well. And uh, so long as the West is willing to support the Ukrainians in this effort, I think the, the Ukrainians are certainly willing to continue fighting for their survival in all of this. So. We're on a trajectory either toward a very long war or some sort of escalation into a direct U.S.-Russian confrontation uh, before we uh, we end all this. So um, right now, uh, it's, it's looking fairly bleak. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be any sign of, of either side relenting. Uh, President Zelensky from Ukraine asking for a lot more weaponry, uh, clearly preparing and settling in for a long haul. Um, I've seen some very smart articles that you were quoted in, uh, and one of the uh, potential dangers here is that Joe Biden seems to have a bigger strategy than just address this war. And it's to use this moment, this, uh, this confrontation, to weaken Russia. A lot of people have heartburn about that. Your thoughts about the idea that the long-term U.S. objective here is to weaken Russia, which could maybe drag a lot more people into this conflict. 
Yeah, that, that, of course, is a temptation that we kind of slid into relatively early in this war when it looked like the Ukrainians were, were winning and the Russians were underperforming relative to what everyone thought would happen. And, and we started, uh, you know, being more susceptible to what you might call mission creep. You right. know, not only could we defend Ukraine against uh uh, captured by the Russians, but we might be able to eliminate our Russia problem altogether. You know, it's so weak in the Russian economy, so weak in its military, um, that it couldn't really be a significant player in the world anymore. Um, the problem with that is really twofold. Um, one is that it might succeed. <laughs> and that sounds sort of paradoxical, but right. uh, you know, Russia can cause problems through being too strong and aggressive. And we're seeing to some degree the fruits of what that kind of thing can look like in Ukraine. But it can also cause problems by weakness. And this is something that we had to wrestle with back in the early uh, post-Soviet period in the 90s. When you know Russia looked like it was spinning apart, you know, it had the uh, the insurrection inside Russia in Chechnya, uh, lack of governance. A lot of Russian right. constituent components were ungovernable. We worried about nuclear weapons, uh, you know, spinning out of control, um, and you know, various technologies leaving Russia and going into the hands of rogue states and terrorists and that sort of thing. So Russia gets too weak and we have a set of other problems that we've got to deal with. But then the other problem is what you might call a, a Versailles treaty problem. You know, after World War One, right. the victors in that war imposed a very punitive peace on Germany. They tried to cripple its economy. They tried to ensure that its defense industry couldn't rebuild the German military into something that would threaten its neighbors anymore. And they, they succeeded in doing that, but they created, of course, the seeds of Hitlerism uh, and revanchism and revenge and resentment. Uh, and that's the pathway thing. to the Second World War. Yeah. Yeah, we're not we're not worried too much about that problem. We think, yeah, we can cripple the Russians, and you know, um, there's not much of a price to be paid for that. But history should tell us we need we should be very cautious about this approach. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. I mean, in, in times of war and major foreign policy crisis, it, there's a lot of people that want to just boil these down to black and white. But foreign policy is a very sensitive chess game, and even little moves can have a very big. Uh, impact on the global stage. And I think a lot of us forget that we're we're consumed with our daily jobs and uh, uh, getting the kids to uh, school or whatever it is. And But this is a very sensitive grid and moving things around can have unintended consequences. Do you see a scenario where uh, Ukraine gets carved up kind of like uh, North and South Korea did in the 50s? Is that a danger here, one of the possible scenarios? Yeah, I think it certainly is. Um, and in fact, I think it's probably the most likely scenario uh, based on the trends we're seeing right now. Um, neither the Russians nor the Ukrainians uh, seem particularly eager to compromise under current circumstances and to, to find some sort of diplomatic settlement. The United States is not pushing anybody to go in that direction. Uh, and 
we're on a trajectory toward a partitioned Ukraine in some way. Uh, the only question is, where are the lines going to be drawn? But uh, it doesn't look at, at uh, the current time like the Ukrainians are going to be able to push the Russian military out of Ukraine altogether. It doesn't look like the Russians can capture all of Ukraine. So we're likely to have, have some sort of de facto line of control separating Ukraine from Russian-controlled areas. Um, and there won't be any formal agreement over that. There won't be a diplomatic settlement uh, where uh, an actual peace accord is uh, signed. But, but rather, we end up with sort of a, a de facto uh, line, uh, a ceasefire but that is never codified. Uh, and it's very volatile and becomes essentially an open wound in Europe. Yeah, that's a real danger. Now, back in April, um, you wrote um, an article suggesting one possibility is a Ukrainian treaty of neutrality, that there could be some sort of pact where Kiev gets security guarantees from the UN Security Council. Uh, Russia gets to kind of keep for the time being the gains it's made in the Crimea and Donbas republics. Uh, and uh, Ukraine addresses the one thing that seems to trigger uh, Vladimir Putin, which is uh, uh, moving towards NATO will remain neutral would be the offer from Ukraine. Is that still plausible or has too much history uh, unfolded since then in the war? Well, it's not impossible, although it's becoming increasingly less likely. Um, this was something that uh, the Ukrainians actually put on the negotiating table in Istanbul not that long after this war broke out in February. They proposed strategic neutrality with that neutrality guaranteed by the UN Security Council. Um, and the Russians indicated that that was something they were willing to contemplate. Now, um, a lot of blood has been spilled since that time, and the positions of the sides have hardened considerably. Um, right now, I'm not sure that the Ukrainians are as willing to contemplate that as they were a few months ago. Uh, but I would say this, unless the United States uh, plays an active role in attempting to steer things toward that kind of outcome, there's no way we're going to wind up there. We're a critical player in all this. The Russians believe that uh, the war is really between uh, the United States uh, acting through its proxy in Ukraine and Russia, not between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, so they're not going to agree to anything unless the United States is willing to uh, come to some sort of understanding here uh, on this issue. Um, right now, I'm not seeing that we have much interest in doing that. Yeah. Uh, as long as that's the case, this is not going to happen. Yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable, uh, but because uh, I, I don't think most Americans realize that that's how Russia sees this, right? Which is that uh, this is really a proxy war and Ukraine is just our proxy in the region. And that drives so much of the Russian decision-making. Um, there's a big decision this week, the State Department said, uh, even though there's a G20 meeting in Bali of foreign ministers, uh, that uh, Tony Blinken wouldn't uh, spend time and, and have a conversation with Lavrov. I, I, about a decade ago, I had the chance to interview President George H.W. Bush uh, in his retirement before he passed away. And I asked him what the most important lesson he, he had in all the various roles he had, CIA director, vice president, president, what was the most important lesson he learned about foreign policy? He said, no matter how hot things get, 
make sure the phone line is always open to your enemies. And I found that I just remember those words so vividly. Uh, is this a mistake for Blinken not to at least ha- engage in a conversation with Lavrov? Well, yeah, I think it is. Uh, we do need to be talking to the Russians and uh, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov and, and Secretary of State Blinken have not spoken since uh, prior to this invasion. It's mind-boggling. Uh, and, you know, we, we do need to have channels of communication open. Um, that's the only way you can really find a way out of this situation. And it's the best way of avoiding escalation into a crisis. Yeah, no, it is. You got to keep the communications open, even no matter how frustrated you are. Just knowing where both sides are is such an important uh part of the of the dance and when there's not communication going on people start guessing and i think that can lead to some pretty significant uh instability um going back to your 2019 book which i think had very prescient warnings and uh when you look at the shadow war that we've been conducting with russia uh certainly uh from the mid uh, 2014 period on time frame for sure um do we still risk a nuclear catastrophe? Are you just as concerned today as you were when you wrote the book uh, back in 2019? Well, I'm more concerned yeah. today than I was when I wrote the book. The book was an effort to alert people to the dangers and provide an opportunity to avert them. Unfortunately, we've you know walked right into the dangers and I think actually doubled down on some of the things that have cause problems. You know, fundamentally, uh, both the United States and Russia have approached this situation by believing that each escalation uh, on their part will cause the other side to back down. It will cause the other side to sober up and say, you know, this isn't worth it. You know, we're going to say uncle. Um, and, you know, the, the Russians, of course, got themselves into the situation by uh, basically putting a gun to NATO's head and saying, you know, you will agree to Ukrainian neutrality or else. Uh, and NATO responded to that, and the United States responded to that by saying, oh, yeah, well, not only are we not going to rule out uh, Ukrainian membership in NATO, we're going to reaffirm our decision that Ukraine will one day be part of the alliance. And we're going to impose all these onerous economic sanctions on you to show you, you know, just how bad things will be if you act. Well, the Russians then said, okay, um, we'll see your, uh, your wager here. We'll raise it. We'll invade. Um, and what did the, the West do? We said, great, we'll, we'll hike up uh, economic sanctions yeah. even more. We'll flood Ukraine with weapons and advisors uh, and technology, um, and we're going to uh, reaffirm NATO's decision that Ukraine is going to be a part of uh, NATO again. Um, whereupon the Russians are now, you know, escalating. We're in a cycle of uh, tit for tat uh, action and reaction that each side believes will cause the other to back down. And you know, unless we engage in some sort of diplomatic negotiation to to find a way out of this it's going to continue yeah. uh, until somebody you know you know faces the prospect of a direct military confrontation 
between the world's two largest nuclear powers, which obviously is extremely dangerous. Yeah, it really is. And and one mistake can really tip this into a really bad direction quickly. And we have a lot of humans involved and that. That's the, the, hum, the humanity of this is always a scary part because of uh, the possibility that one misread can, can lead to something really, really devastating. I want to ask about the capability of our diplomatic corps on this particular issue. There's a lot of places where our State Department excels really well and does a lot of things. There seems to have been a disconnect between some of the objectives of the United States and then some of the ways we've carried out our policy in Eastern Europe. And there's been a very consistent hand for most of the last two decades in this area. Somebody I think you might have had a chance to work with uh, back in the days when you were advising Vice President Dick Cheney on Russia matters. But Victoria Newland's been a very important quarterback in Eastern Europe, certainly during the Obama years, again, now as Under Secretary of State. Um, does the State Department have the right approach on this matter right now? When you look back, uh, are we using the right tools and levers to try to get a good outcome for ourselves? Well, you know, I think the United States Diplomatic Corps fell into some bad habits after the Cold War ended. We were the world's hegemon. Right. Uh, an unrivaled pole in a unipolar world. And we didn't really have to compromise. We didn't have to engage in traditional balance of power politics, traditional give and take compromises. Um, we could simply tell other countries, do this or else, because uh, we had such overwhelming power that nobody could really say no. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, what has happened over time is that much of the world has said, you know, we, we didn't really like that very much. <laughs> and um, they've started to react, to uh, amass the ability to resist uh, America's uh, directions. Um, it's become a multipolar world. Russia and China are pushing back. Uh, we face a a peer competitor in China, um, and we can't approach things the way we did back in the 1990s and early 2000s. We have to recover our ability to engage in traditional balance of power politics. Yeah. And, and we don't have a lot of experience, unfortunately, doing that right now. Yeah, you're right. It seems to be a blind spot in our in our portfolio. and. Uh, uh, there's a moment now where uh, if it ever were to be res resurrected, it seems like now would be a really good time. But there doesn't seem to be the leadership to to move that that um, capability to a, a different place. Um, are you surprised by uh, the performance of the Russian military? It seems like for all of its power, it, it hasn't fared that well against Ukraine. Uh, and two, are you uh, what, what's your assessment of Vladimir Putin's hold on power inside his own country? Well, I was initially surprised by uh, some of the mistakes the Russians made in the first phase of this war. They clearly did not believe they would face serious resistance from the Ukrainians. They thought they could simply drive into Kiev, raise the Russian flag, and the Zelensky government and Ukrainian people would flee. Um, they came armed with riot control gear. Um, which tells you that they thought their biggest challenge is going to be maintaining civic order, not defeating uh, an army. Uh, they obviously uh, were greatly mistaken in that. 
but they have regrouped. Um, they've concentrated their forces in the east. They've um, used uh, tactics that have been far more effective, and they are making slow but steady progress there. So um, although I was surprised at their initial approach, I think they, they have regrouped and, and they're starting to have uh, more significant success. Yeah, I think uh, we hear that from a lot of the frontline uh, military folks, too, that the, yeah, now, the Russians have made progress. In terms of his hold on power, yeah. at this point, I don't think he is in any significant danger. Um, opinion polls in Russia, and yes, you do have to take those with something of a grain of salt, <laughs> sure. but they're not altogether inaccurate, inaccurate. They show that his popularity has actually gone up since this invasion. Wow. Um, and the Russian people seem to be coping with economic sanctions fairly well. Um, so it doesn't look to me like there's you know, any near-term political crisis on the horizon there. Yeah, very, very important to, to understand that dynamic. Um, I want to ask the last question because uh, we have a 2014 invasion of Ukraine, a 2022 invasion of Ukraine. Joe Biden is a consistent among those. President, Former President uh, Donald Trump likes to say, if I were still in power, this would never have happened. Your assessment of the different approaches that the Trump administration and Obama-Biden, which are very similar uh, uh, to Russia. Is there any truth to what, vice, uh, to what former President Trump said? Would this still have happened on Trump's watch? Well, that's obviously uh, uh, an historical question that's right. that you know, we can't know for sure. That's right. But I would say that there is a difference between the kinds of things that Trump, uh, the president, was saying about right. how we ought to be dealing with Russia and NATO and Europe on the one hand, and the positions of people within his administration on the other. Um, most of the people within his administration uh, thought about this issue very similarly to what uh, the Obama and Biden administrations have thought. Um, and Trump himself, I think, was an outlier within his government. So, you know, whether that would be true under a new Trump administration, hypothetically, you know, could Trump actually um, put together a team uh, on this that was like-minded with him, that could adopt a different approach that might have a chance of greater success with the Russians? You know, we won't know. Uh, we can't know that question. Um, but unfortunately, uh, you know, there was a lot of continuity uh, within the Trump uh, working levels on Ukraine. Um, and, you know, both the Biden and, uh, and Obama teams on this. And I think it's a failed approach. Yeah, it's really amazing that uh, there hasn't been more of an assessment of the failure of that. And uh, it's really, uh, I think history will look back and we'll have an opportunity to better understand where we want to stray. But I think that 1990s, early 2000 time frame that you so rightly uh, highlighted uh, probably would have been a time where we could have done a few things different and ended up in a better spot. George, how do people follow the good work you're doing at, at Quincy and other places? What's the best way to stay in, in touch with all of your good work? Uh, well, you know, the Quincy Institute has uh, a website. It has uh, Twitter handles. Um, uh, and it publishes uh, an online journal called Responsible Statecraft. Yeah. So, uh, our work is available in all those places. 
A very important reading. If you haven't, folks, if you haven't bookmarked this, if you're worried about the world, this is a great website, responsiblestatecraft.org. It's one of the first things I check every morning. Very smart articles, and I see George in there all the time, along with a lot of other great writers. Uh, George, it's an honor to have you on today. Thanks for uh, giving us a great update on the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Very much appreciate it. Thanks, John. My pleasure. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, more conversation right after this. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay-up letters. Millions, I say. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why the IRS targets you and not millionaires? Well, because millionaires have tax lawyers. You don't, you'll pay up. Plus interest and penalties. You need Tax Network USA, and you need them now. Tax Network USA has brilliant war room strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. Like a preferred direct line to the IRS, they know which agents to deal with and who to avoid. It's not all bad news for you because Tax Network USA learned of a special limited time IRS offer. They're willing to waive $1 billion in penalties if you qualify. So schedule your free confidential consultation to see if you qualify for this limited time IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit tnusa.com slash justnews. That's tnusa.com slash justnews. Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner. Whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bike, you and your family need to be prepared. That's what we learned from this last pandemic, right? That's where the wellness company comes in. You know the wellness company. We have their great doctors like Dr. Peter McCullough on all the time on our shows. The wellness company and their doctors are medical professionals that you can trust. And the new medical emergency kits are the gold standard when it comes to keeping you safe and healthy, and most importantly, prepared. Be ready for anything. This medical emergency kit contains an assortment of life-saving medications, including ivermectin and z The medical emergency kit provides a guidebook to aid in the safe use of all of these life-saving medications. So you know what you're doing. From anthrax to tick bites to COVID and even the bioweapon like the plague, the wellness company's medical emergency kit is exactly what you need to have on hand to be prepared. Rest assured knowing that you have emergency antibiotics, antivirals, and antiparasitics on hand to keep you and your family safe from whatever the globalists throw your way. Go to www.twchealth/justnews today in order. That's twc.health/justnews and use the promo code justnews to save 10%. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. Lots of us are still coming to grips with yet another terrible mass shooting that occurred. Uh, this one, of course, on the 4th of July in the suburbs of Chicago. And uh, this one raises questions uh, profoundly because this is a state that has all of the Democrats' wish lists for gun control. They have the red flag laws. They have a bans on uh, high-powered rifles. They have all the different things that Democrats say will solve our problem with mass shootings. And yet, uh, the suspect in that case got the gun, committed the shooting, even though police had been at his home, even though there had been red flags with this guy for several years, and the very rifle he used 
to kill people, allegedly used to kill people, uh, was banned in the very community where he lived, which means the laws didn't work, which is something a lot of people have been warning that non-law-abiding citizens are still going to find a way to commit crime. We have a perfect guest to walk us through this, what we can learn from this so we can get smarter and better at stopping shootings. His name is Austin Davis. He's a reserve police officer and serves uh, as the Concealed Coalition's National Training Director. Austin, great to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me, John. Now, you do. You have some really interesting work. You teach classes on how to de-escalate a situation that might be spiraling towards violence, to have situational awareness, uh, to uh, deal with normalcy bias, and all these things are things that civilians can use every day to be safer and also to protect their community. What are we missing in this debate? When we look at what happened on the 4th of July, where is this country not having the right debate? Well, first off, my heart goes out to the families that were affected by this. You know, there's nothing more tragic than two parents losing their lives, shielding their child. So the, the magnitude of pain from this environment is amazing. And it's not the first time it's going to happen. And it's not the last time it's going to happen. So we have to start asking ourselves some questions. Number one, you had every law in place that the people who want to uh, limit the second amendment rights to about 81 million Americans, in place and it didn't help, it didn't work. You know, you had the firearms identification card that his father signed for, you had the police come out and, and see some edge weapons. The father then made a statement to get the edge weapons back, they were his. Everything was in place to make this happen, but still it did not stop an evil person with a gun with evil intent. Yeah, it is remarkable. I think that is the dynamic that has a lot of people scratching their heads. And so if you can't legislate your way out of this, there seems to be a lot of tactics that we don't talk about every day related to mental illness, relating, uh, relating to identifying people in distress, people that are hurtling towards maybe a violent episode and the people around them don't know what to do. What are some of the solutions that are missing from the conversation that we should be considering? I mean, you do this in law enforcement, you do this in training. What are the, the things that we should be having a conversation about? Well, on a practical level, and I'm pretty much an outcome-based guy, we need to think about how our world is changing because we need to become our own first responders. When you are, and I hate to give this advice, but when you're in a public event now, you need to be your own first responder. You need to tell your family, if something happens, here's our exit, here's our secondary exit. If we get separated, here's where we're going to meet. Um, also, I hate to admit this, but I carry trauma gear with me everywhere I go. I carry it in a small ankle kit. I have tourniquets. I have chest seals. I have wound packing material. Wow. Um, and let me tell you, the reason I do that is because if there is some sort of critical incident, I can save myself, I can save the people with me, and I can save others if I have to. And this frees up emergency responders to help other people who weren't as prepared. So it is some confirmation bias being a police officer and a, a civilian trainer for over 30 years. But I'm a high big fan of carrying your own medical gear, having a plan with your family. This is not any different than saying, hey, everybody, buckle up. We're going to drive defensively. This is defensive living 101 in the current environment we face ourselves. Learn to be your own first responder. Yeah, what a smart, smart mindset. We got to get more and more people into that mindset. Now, uh, I want to step back because the, the victims of a shooting like what happened the 4th of July in the Chicago suburbs are many. The officers that go through this, there's that incredible photo of that officer. You can see heartbroken as he walks through the crime scene with the bodies of the children around. Uh, when you when you step back and you look at this, uh, when a police officer goes in and uh, they're, they're in the circumstance of having to neutralize a suspect or protect the crowd from an ongoing active shooter, what are these uh, 
what is the mindset that they have and what happens after a big event like this? Well, the three things an officer always has to do and civilians as well is first control yourself in the situation. Next thing, control the people in the situation, then try to control the situation. And the sad part in law enforcement is just because this event happened does not mean the shift is over. They still have to finish out the day and the scars from this can last forever. You know, sometimes you make the call and you think there's not enough counseling in the United States to to undo what's about to, I'm about to go through. Yeah. Such an important thing for all of us to remember because it doesn't the shift doesn't end and the next day you come right back and, and you have to go back into that environment knowing that something bad could happen again and i think i grew up in a family of uh, of all cops i'm the in fact the only non-cop among the men in my family uh and you, you see that every day they got to get up and do that job regardless of how hard the day was the day before and i think that understanding that dynamic is sometimes foreign to people who don't see it every day. You talk about something in your training that I think is really important, and that's called normalcy bias. A lot of people may not know what that is, but it is something that can blind civilians to uh, uh, to red flags and things that are going on. What is normalcy bias? Well, normalcy bias has a lot of different ways to explain it. One of my favorite is it'll never happen to me. That's the most common normalcy <laughs> bias. It's, right. I've never been a public event that got shot up. I've never had a home invasion, so it'll never happen to me. And if you don't believe it can happen to you, you won't be motivated to make those training equipment tactics and mindset necessary to deal with it when it does show up on your doorstep. You know, people say all the time, I live in a safe neighborhood. Like the criminals have some big Google map they're working off of. Oh, can't go there. That's that safe neighborhood. Or the normalcy bias is I live in a rural area. Crime didn't affect us. Crime affects you. There's just no witnesses. So normalcy bias is being in a movie theater and the movie theater starts getting shot up and you say, well, these are actors, these are fireworks, or there must be some logical explanation and that wastes time. And, you know, the sooner we see things, read the situation, recognize the situation, react, the more time we get, the more time we have in the situation, the more options we have to, to self-affect a rescue. And it's, it is changing your mindset to that sensitivity that we often try not to have, right? We don't, we don't want anything bad to happen, so we're going to still see things as normal when they're not how does normalcy bias affect the effectiveness of red flag loss? And also, I'd like to ask you this question. As someone in law enforcement, as someone who's a big uh, advocate of the Second Amendment, uh, do red flag gun laws really work? Well, first off, I think whether you, whatever side you're on in the, the gun control debate, we both, both sides agree 100%. Mentally ill people with violent intentions should not have access to firearms. Let's just put that as a, as a given. Yeah. What concerns me, though, is I think the red flag law is a serious Second Amendment um, rights threat. You know, there's some serious questions about the constitutionality, the practicality, but at the end of the day, Americans have a right to due process. And, you know, when you remove that right, even temporarily, it requires a lot of safeguards, those due process. So the red flag law, I have a neighbor who doesn't like me, and they say, we're going to go put a red flag on Austin Davis. And then all of a sudden they come in, they seize my firearms. Great. Now I've got to find a lawyer to get my firearms back. I have to find mental health workers, which will sign off on me. And I have to take time away from my life and productive aspects of my business and my family and bandwidth. And if you don't have some sort of prepaid legal defense for self-defense, which includes red flag laws, you now have to spend thousands or tens of thousands of dollars and weeks, months, or years to get those firearms back. And even if they say you're innocent, you still get all that time, energy, money, and effort and concern back. Such a great point. It's a, it is a long process. Um, there was a major victory for the Second Amendment at the end of this Supreme Court session. Uh, New York Pistol and Rifle Association versus Bruin 
uh, a clear declaration by the court, 6-3 majority, that the right to bear arms means more than just owning an arm. It means the right to reasonably carry in most environments. Uh, how big a mo- change, a momentous change is this going to be in America? Uh, I've been in the, the, the gun rights fight for about 30 years, and it's, it's earth-shaking. It's like I've never seen in 30 years. And it really came at a very good time because Americans shouldn't have to prove that they're a stalking victim or a victim of family violence. To, to somehow come in and get this May issue permit given to them. You know, 25 states have constitutional or permitless carry, and those don't seem to be the ones we see with the violence that we see in these other more prohibited states. And personally, I don't think this, the Bruin decision could have come at a better time because we're in a situation to where that normalcy bias, again, of I will go ahead and call the police and they will show up, may or may not happen. You know, just for my own agency that I patrol with, you know, my radio doesn't work. I have to turn it off and turn it on to broadcast. We have no more radios in supply chain. They are not available to me. Um, we have a lot of oh. patrol cars with tire problems because we need certain level of performance tire, and those are very difficult. Some small agencies I'm aware of right now are limiting the response to calls, and they're limiting the number of patrol miles driven because they've already eaten through their fuel budget. So. You know, the, the large metropolitan just north of me in my county, their, their response time is about 14 minutes. You need to get your head wrapped around the fact that you're on your own. Yeah. That, you know, you are your own first responder. In 15 minutes can be an eternity in a crisis like a mass shooting. Uh, that's why preparation and mindset are so important to this. Um, I want to ask a little bit because you just described an environment of what uh, police are facing on the supply chain front and elsewhere. But... Uh, there's also a morale problem. Everywhere I talk to the men and women in blue, there is grave concerns about uh, the morale, the, the approach that the Biden-Harris uh, and Democratic mayors are taking across this country to fund the police movement and its legacy. Um, what is the morale situation with the great men and women of, of blue? Well, I'm in, a, I'm in a unique position to answer that question, I think. I received my first commission in 1995, and I left police work a long time ago. COVID hit. I came back into law enforcement after a long gap, and what I came back into was shocking. Um, first off, so much of what we do now is catch and release. They're literally back on the streets before the paperwork is done. Um, the older officers are gone. The younger officers aren't coming in, and the ones left on the job are having some very, very tough times with what's going on because half the community really does not understand what we do and the other half thinks we can do more than we can do we're in an almost no-win situation and to go and put on a uniform these days and walk around publicly is shocking it's much different than when i left before it is it is truly you feel like you have a target on your back from a Mm. lot of different varying groups that is a scary thing to hear the brain drain too that you just mentioned the older officers gone how how significant is it that the culture of learning has been interrupted by such a big brain drain Well, I'm a field training officer for my agency, and it's amazing because, you know, the only thing that age gives us that's a truly irreplaceable value is perspective. And it's so hard these days when you don't have those older officers because every time you make a call, there's some routine calls that that you've dealt with before, but so many of these situations are unique, and you need that older officer who he or she has been there and says, hey, I've seen this before. Here's how we did it in the past. And those people are gone. Matter of fact, many of the people that I still consult with in law enforcement are long retired, but they're on my cell phone call list. And many times on call, I've got to call them and say, Rodney, what do I do? You've ever seen this before? I've got a situation. And that brain drain is gone. And it's not coming back. And the new generation, there's not enough 
to even staff what we have currently, much less get enough time with officers being removed to go do training. Yeah, it is a crisis uh, that doesn't get reported in the media very often, but International Chiefs of Pol- Association of Chiefs Police really had uh, some amazing statistics. 78% of agencies report report having difficulty recruiting qualified police candidates. 65% of the agencies report having too few candidates. 75% of the agencies reported that recruiting is more difficult today than it was five years ago. 25% of agencies reported having to reduce or eliminate certain agency services because of a shortage of qualified officers. Uh, that is a crisis in the making, and it's going to have downstream effects right now. Um, there was a pretty big announcement a couple of weeks ago that I think has more than just morale, uh, impacted more than just morale. Uh, the Chicago mayor saying the police no longer will be allowed to pursue uh, subjects uh, who aren't certain felony uh, suspects on foot even, so that bad guys can simply run away and the cops can't do anything about it. Your take on that policy and what it does, not only to morale, but to the safety of the community. Well, Chicago's doing so well. I'm glad to see <laughs> that they're putting a policy in place that makes the officers and the citizens safer. You know, not being able to foot chase them tells me that it's going to restrict the officer's effectiveness. It's going to make the criminals criminals a lot more bold. I don't know if you saw the video the other night where they had blocked off the street at about 3 a.m. and doing some sort of street spinning around with the cars. And when the officers showed up, about 100 of these folks um, on the scene decided right. to charge the police car, start kicking in the window, launching fireworks at them. This is what happens when you lose control of the city. And we're we are looking at that. Very much so. So, you know, this is also going to add this no foot policy, another layer of training when you have very little training, available time, very little bandwidth, very little expense, very little spare officers take them off for training. We have to not only put that policy in, we have to train that officer because if we don't have training in context that will result in the same behavior in the street, these officers are going to be off policy because they didn't have recent realistic and relevant training on this policy. Yeah, what an amazing moment to think of how much we've disarmed the very people who could solve the crisis that Chicago is. I mean, the murders there, the shootings there. I think there were 65 or 70 shootings this weekend alone in Chicago. Uh, And yet uh, the war zone that it is, the people who can actually bring peace are are being handcuffed more and more every day. It's a a head scratcher. Um, I want to go to one last uh, episode. It happened in California, but I think it's caught a lot of attention. And uh, it's been focused predominantly because of the privacy impact of it. But I also think there's a security aspect of it. The leak by a state agency of uh, the personal identities of uh, concealed carry uh, permit holders in the state of California. Your thoughts about what happened there and not only the privacy violation that it clearly is, but does some of these people now have their lives in danger uh, or their security in danger because of the leak? Well, as the director of Concealed Coalition, we're in all 50 states. And of course, we have a lot of our community out of California. What's interesting is when the story broke, I was in California and I was around people who were on that list, some very pro-gun people. I was in a business function. And what's interesting was I heard everything from, oh my gosh, if this gets public, this, this could ruin me professionally. This could crush my business. This could end my employment. I had family members there who were concerned that if this list got out, that their kids were not going to be allowed to play with other children because we're a pro-2A family. But what's really concerning to me is that list goes out, which creates a roadmap for the very offenders that many yep. of these people 
applied for a license for. They are domestic violence victims, they are stalking victims, sexual assault victims, and then now there's a roadmap for this. So what is truly the, 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 the real problem with me in this California release is it happened one of two ways. Either there's an accident and some process and we need to find out, or it was intentional and we need to find out. And I think an independent investigation is appropriate in this situation. I know the AG said they would give credit monitoring, but this is a much, much deeper thing. And the real pain for me in this California situation is these are what the, 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 the non-2A people really want. They want people to go, look, I, I need to know what your gun is, register your gun. I want you to give me your personal information for a background check right. and then go through a very rigorous training process. They did all this and the state still failed them. Yeah, I know. It's unreal what happened. And uh, you're right. Uh, that's the part that a lot of people don't realize. Some people who often, particularly in a restrictive state like California, people that get these concealed uh, permits are often people that have a security risk already, meaning they're a victim of domestic violence, particularly women. Uh, and now all of them, their their potential pursuers or potential the uh, bad opponents or people looking to victimize them have a roadmap, uh, an unbelievable leak with just unbelievable consequences. And uh, I don't know, uh, it will be interesting to get to the bottom of that and figure out what happened. Austin, real quickly, uh, describe the mission a little bit of Concealed Coalition and um, uh, the training that you do. I mean, you guys do the some of the most important training for people who want to be a responsible gun owner, a responsible carrier of guns. Well, it can still coalition. Our message is, is be a guardian always and a warrior when needed. And it's that guardian always really focus on. We think that, you know, shooting a gun is important, but shooting a gun is the smallest thing on a long list of things in defensive living that you need to focus on. So we spend a lot of more time on, for example, awareness training so that you can read the situation, react to it, uh, recognize it and react to it in time. We do a lot of de-escalation training. We believe a lot in intermediate use of force weapons because in about 80% of the situation, your gun's 100% of the wrong tool. If it's a simple assault, so having pepper spray, but having training, understanding how to function low light, cover concealment angle training. And then for the last 10 years, I've been very heavily involved in using um, virtual reality judgment training simulators. So people actually get in real situations where their brain has a hard time understanding between a real and a high fidelity event and training them in real time to give them the procedures and a place in their brain that will react when it needs to react without thought. So we're, we're really big believers in training in context. Treating the brain is, is not an information storage device, but where we put that information. So when you gasp, oh my gosh, can't believe this happened to me, you actually will be able to respond. That fight, flight, freeze part, we're hopefully taking the freeze out or at least minimizing that response. Yeah, such an important part of the uh, the process and uh, going through it. Uh, there's nothing like the training of going for it to be conditioned in case something bad ever happens. God forbid it doesn't, but if it does, uh, then you're, you're ready. And I think this is really a great public service. Uh, a lot of what you train is some of the things that they train pro uh, professional police officers in, right? I train at the academy level from time yeah. to time. And yes, in a lot of ways, I would counter that some of our training for our civilian users is better than what officers get. You know, in my state, you get about 60 hours as a basic recruit of firearms training, but you only get eight hours of de-escalation training. And that eight hours includes lunch. So, you know, we need to put our priorities in the softer skills. Yes, you may have to shoot a gun, but the odds of that are very small. But the odds of you having to de-escalate, the odds of you being aware, because more awareness gives you more time, more time gives you more options, uh, understanding interviews of force, all these things are skill sets, how to function in low light, that are very commonly used more than your gun and things that are usually not taught because shooting the gun is the easy part. It's the fun part. Unfortunately, it's the expensive part these days. 
Yeah, that really is amazing. Yeah, it is expensive. Isn't that the truth? Um, Austin, this is great stuff. Real quickly, how do people reach Concealed Coalition if they want to get involved with it? We're in all 50 states. Go to concealedcoalition.com. We also have Concealed Coalition University, which is um, course loads. It's very specific to the skill sets I talk about. But then once you get that, you can come into our virtual tactical academy and deal with the simulator and virtual reality tools a non-live firing firearm to let you learn in a safe environment where your brain can absorb things. Scared people don't learn, but we want to put you in as realistic an uh, uh, environment as possible with no live firearms, but virtual reality tools. It's, it's Nobody else in the industry has what we have, and we're very, very proud of it. The latest in technology, the best in uh, um, uh, procedures and practices. Uh, what a great opportunity and such a noble cause as well. Austin, thanks so much for your time. This is a really interesting issue. And um, I think uh, folks are, are getting better educated every day. And I think you've helped uh, move that along for them very much. I really appreciate the time today. Hey, John, thank you for letting me get my message out. Uh, very important stuff. Really enjoyed it. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up for the day. You know what, folks? Stress may be why you can't lose weight. If you've got moderate to high stress like I do, a doctor-formulated weight loss supplement called Lean could be your solution. Chronic stress wreaks havoc on blood sugar, which can cause your body to store excess fat. Stress can also slow your metabolism, which fuels weight gain. And you know all about stress eating and sugar cravings, right? Now the good news. The studied ingredients in Lean have been shown to help maintain healthy blood sugar levels, help optimize metabolism, and keep your appetite under control. Now, if your life is a bit stressful like mine and you want to lose weight, Add lean to your healthy diet and exercise lifestyle. Now get 15% off and free shipping at takelean.com. That's takelean.com and enter the promo code justnews15. That's the promo code justnews15 at takelean.com. One more time, takelean.com. Statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and it's not a substitute alternative for care from a healthcare provider. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, thanks for joining us. So grateful that you can spend some time with us. We enjoy having you here at justthenews.com, at John Solomon Reports. And of course, if you need a news fix, we got you covered 24-7 with breaking headlines, investigative scoops, enterprise reporting, big picture stories, big newsmaker interviews. Go check us out all the time at justthenews.com or even better yet, go download the Just the News app in the iOS, Apple, and Android, Google stores. A great way to read listen and watch just the news content yep we have video we have radio we've got text you should check us out every day on the just the news app easy to download from ios and the android store thanks for joining us we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of john solomon reports a podcast from just the news 
You know what, folks? Stress may be why you can't lose weight. If you've got moderate to high stress like I do, a doctor-formulated weight loss supplement called Lean could be your solution. Chronic stress wreaks havoc on blood sugar, which can cause your body to store excess fat. Stress can also slow your metabolism, which fuels weight gain. And you know all about stress eating and sugar cravings, right? Now the good news. The studied ingredients in Lean have been shown to help maintain healthy blood sugar levels, help optimize metabolism, and keep your appetite under control. Now, if your life is a bit stressful like mine and you want to lose weight, add lean to your healthy diet and exercise lifestyle. Now, get 15% off and free shipping at takelean.com. That's takelean.com and enter the promo code justnews15. That's the promo code justnews15 at takelean.com. One more time, takelean.com. Statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and it's not a substitute or alternative for care from a healthcare provider. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion, Hunter Biden, and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events, and you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe.